Welcome to the Becker's Healthcare Women's Leadership Podcast. I'm Molly Gamble, your host, Vice President of Editorial for Becker's Healthcare and Editor-in-Chief of Becker's Hospital Review. Today, it's my pleasure to speak with Joyce Neumeyer, Chief Culture Officer of Adventist Health. As a Chief Culture Officer, Joyce is responsible for culture, communication, engagement, learning, development, residencies, and internships, as well as diversity, equity, and inclusion. Joyce also serves as president of Adventist Health Pacific Northwest Region, which includes Adventist Health Portland and Adventist Health Tillamook in Oregon and Adventist Health Castle in Hawaii. In this role, Joyce chairs a community board for each hospital and oversees the operations of more than 40 medical clinics, two home care agencies, and two retirement centers in the Northwest. Joyce holds a bachelor's degree in business administration from California State University, Fresno, and a master's degree in health services administration from St. Francis University. Joyce, thanks so much for joining me for the Women's Leadership Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure and my privilege. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. So Joyce, you know, the role of Chief Culture Officer, first of all, congratulations. You've been in this role for about a month now. Uh, but it's interesting because that's a title that is not a given for every major health system in the U.S., at least not yet. Uh, for listeners joining us today who may be less familiar with this title and its job description, what is the single most important for them, thing for them to know? Um, well, the, I think the single most important thing is that culture exists, whether you create it intentionally or not. It is there. And so you can either let it be and let it grow organically, and then maybe you get what you want and maybe you don't, or you can create it purposely, on purpose, with intentionality. And um, that's what I think I'm the most excited about with this position. When our CEO, Scott Reiner, called me one day, uh, we had been talking about what was next for me? I had a sense that there was a next, but I wasn't sure what it was because I loved my current job and loved the people I was working with and still do. Um, but he said, are you at a computer where you can open something? And I said, yeah. And I opened the document that said chief culture officer. And I started laughing right out loud because I knew that, um, that he was responding to what my perceived next was. And it was to create a culture for our entire company that is on purpose, with intention, and then is designed the way that we want it to be to achieve our goals. Mm -hmm. Now, when you say for your entire company, can you help listeners and share some reminders about Adventist health size and scope? How many associates are we talking here? How many sites of care? Any uh, key figures you could share just to shed some light on that? Sure. We have, um, I, I'll say as part of our broad um, family, uh, about 30,000 people. And that includes, um, you know, the medical staff, it includes um, employed associates and um, even some volunteers. Um, this is hospitals in California, Oregon, and Hawaii, as well as clinics and home health, like you said in your introduction. So we have a, a very um, diverse workforce in very diverse locations. And that makes it even more challenging, perhaps, to develop 
a culture. Now there are going to be local iterations. For example, our hospital in Hawaii very much has a, a, a Hawaiian ohana culture, the family culture there, that is going to look and feel different than some of our other facilities in different kinds of markets. But we can still have one identified Adventist health culture where we say this is who we are, it's who we have chosen to be, and our behaviors will create this culture. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you mentioned that you had this feeling of there's something next, there's something next for me, and you couldn't quite pinpoint what that was. And I think a lot of people, period, have that feeling and that instinct, but women especially. Sometimes it's just this feeling that it's time for the next challenge, it's time to move on. Um, and it takes some sussing out. It really does take some internal dialogue with oneself. But I'm curious about the experiences. You know, you have a unique title with chief culture officer. I'm curious about the experiences that, looking back, you feel have really had an outsized influence on your job today. What experiences really shaped you to become an effective CCO? You know, I started my career in healthcare um, literally as a teenager, um, registering patients on school vacations in an outpatient registration setting. Um, I, I worked as a fill-in secretary in various departments. I worked on the hospital switchboard. Um, I'm so grateful for all of those opportunities uh, because it taught me a lot about how hospitals work and about how the human beings who work in hospitals interact with one another. That led me to um, the begin my adult career in the revenue cycle, billing and collections side of things. And that led to more general administration. But every, every transition that I made showed me that it's really all about the relationships between the people doing the work. That's how culture is created. Our choices create the behaviors and the behaviors create the culture. And so it wasn't so much the specific job descriptions. It was my understanding that everything that happened in the hospital created the culture. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be purposeful about how we do that if we want a culture that is designed rather than just evolves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And when you were volunteering in high school, was it, I was a candy striper myself in the hospital gift shop and the front desk. Um, is, is that similar to what you, you were doing as a volunteer in high school? Oh, this is going to be interesting. Um, I actually didn't volunteer. They hired me. Okay, wow. And I look back and I think, why did they do that? I didn't know anything. Um, and my very first job um, was going to the barn out behind the hospital and sorting through all the old medical records oh and gosh. what could be disposed of and what had to be kept. And Oh my goodness, in that barn, there were, it was back in the days when we still had body parts in formaldehyde in jars on the shelf from surgery. And I, I, it was not air conditioned. It was the middle of summer. Um, wow. I was practically uh, in tears. It was such a, a, a hateful job, actually. And uh, I still remember my, uh, my dad worked at that facility and I saw him at lunchtime and I was practically in tears because it was just such a terrible job to have to do. And he said, um, honey, if you stick with this, um, you'll one day have the cream of the crop jobs. 
And so don't ever underestimate the importance of every job, even if it seems distasteful, because it will lead to new opportunities. And um, as usual, dad was right. I have a cream of the crop job. <laughs> Joyce, that is an amazing story. Oh my gosh. I mean, in addition to the unpleasant um, environment, it sounds like it was just a stressful job period sorting through records like that, paper records. So yeah, I, I, I appreciate that spirit. I think um, you can learn a lot about yourself, if nothing else, through jobs like that. So it's good you stuck with it. Uh, you know, I'm curious about the ways in which the pandemic over the last several months, you are a CCO, of course, but how has the pandemic challenged organizational cultures, not only at your system, but more broadly? What have you seen unfold? I have friends in many other industries, as I'm sure your listeners do, and this will probably ring true. One of the biggest challenges is um, we can't gather. We're not in the same places. So, you know, celebrating is harder. Um, the kind of camaraderie and teamwork that um, many of us find valuable and meaningful in our workplaces, that's just been a lot harder. Um, I, I think that it's been stressful as well, um, particularly for people who um, rely on those interactions to build relationships to get things done. It can actually be harder to get things done when you are connected virtually or through text message or emails. Um, and so I think that's been challenging. I also think that there have been some rewards. Um, I'm always looking for the silver linings in the clouds and certainly um, this pandemic has been a cloud um, uh, unprecedented in my lifetime. Um, but I, in addition to that cloud, those silver linings come through um, and we've, I, I think there have been blessings to count. Um, one of those has been that now we know for sure that we can be productive from anywhere. You don't have to be physically in an office to have meaningful, valuable contribution to a workplace and to a team. And I've been particularly impressed with some of the teams that, that I've seen doing some really creative work about how to do team building. Um, uh, in my new role, one of the teams that um, is now part of my responsibilities is leadership and organizational development. What a creative, amazing group of people. And they have a just 30 minutes on Friday at lunchtime where they gather with some kind of a planned online activity that is all built around staying connected, um, getting to know each other better, learning more about each other's backgrounds, what their dreams are. Um, it is so much fun that in a very short period of time, I learned I really don't want to miss that Friday fun time. Um, and I bet I know those people now better than I would have if we were just physically in the same space because we'd stay busy and never intentionally create that separate time. Mm -hmm. You hit on some, I mean, two really interesting points. A, being that we can't gather and whether that's to celebrate or receive or share good news or bad, the ability to do that before was something I know I took for granted. Um, and the fact that we can't do that now with our teams, it presents some challenges, of course. But also, you know, we know for sure now we can be productive from anywhere. And I think, I'm sure you've seen articles like this as well, but uh, in different business publications and newspapers, you'll have CEOs of pretty large companies, household name companies, sharing their back to work plans. And it's been interesting to see some of the variation in their responses. And I think I've sussed out that you have 
the one camp where, hey, we'll get back to the same physical space when it's safe. Um, there's no rush. We're doing fine. We're productive as is. And then there's also the camp that's a bit more eager to get back um, to offices and office culture because they have raised some questions about productivity from afar. What would be your message to CEOs or other C-level leaders who still, the, the concerns about productivity while remote have not been completely eliminated? Um, I, I would encourage other leaders to really assess what, what are the goals? Are they being achieved? If so, do we need to adjust our measurements and how we look at productivity? Um, is, you know, productivity doesn't necessarily mean showing up around a table in a traditional fashion. Maybe a Teams or a, a Zoom event um, actually works just as well. Uh, I think we also have to consider that this has been really hard on people. And I think it's been particularly hard on women in the workplace. Um, I talked with someone the other day who was saying, I work full time. I'm now working remotely from home. And I just found out that uh, my children's school is not opening. It's um, going to be all remote learning from home. And my husband is going to work. Um, what am I supposed to do? How am I going to continue to do this full-time job while my kids are needing to be online and, and, I'm, and, and learning? And I think it's interesting how women are called upon to be um, all things to all people, right? Um, and uh, we're, we need to now be overseeing homeschool and um, we need to be working full-time and we still need to be um, making sure dinner's on the table and that the kids are fed, only now we have to do snack time and lunch time. And um, I say we, my kids are grown and so I, this isn't something I'm facing, but I certainly hear from those who are. And um, I, I think that employers are going to need to reassess what works and what doesn't work and how do we keep these people as a member of our team and, and members of the workforce without trying to cram everybody into the same small box. Mm -hmm. um, I was talking with someone at Adventist Health yesterday about um, our plans to quote, return to work um, when it is safe to do so. And I said, I, I hope we never return to the way things used to be. Now that we know we can be flexible and still be productive, I hope we're flexible to keep the best people that we can find engaged in our teams without everybody having to be exactly the same. Um, so that would be my advice. Um, I still believe it's possible. I think flexibility um, in, in how we show up at work um, is going to make sense forever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's something I, I wanted to discuss with you is because, you know, regardless of how the distribution of responsibilities may fall on any one listener, overall analyses has, have found that mothers of children, especially those under age 12, have lost jobs at three times the rate of fathers of the same, you know, age of children between February and August. What, what's, when you hear that finding, what's your reaction to that, Joyce? Boy, I wish I could tell you I'm surprised. Yeah. And I'm just not. Um, so much is expected of um, women in the workplace, and particularly if they're, if they're moms. Um, so I'm not surprised. I still think that there's also old thinking out there 
that um, particularly if a woman is married and um, her spouse has a, a job and works either outside the home or even inside the home now remotely, um, that somehow her work is more uh, expendable, I'll say, uh, and that somehow organizations are a bit off the hook to feel badly when they aren't uh, needed anymore in that in their opinion. Um, I don't know, does that make sense? It, it just yes. seems like um, somehow we seem more expendable if there's someone else also winning bread in the family. And that's just not right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wish I could say I'm surprised. Uh, I also think that um, women tend to fill positions in organizations um, at, at a larger percentage that sometimes are lower in the organization. That's not a big surprise probably to the women who are going to be listening to this podcast. And so it's easier to say we can do with fewer of those folks and it doesn't make it uh, true or right. Right. But I believe the statistics. Yeah, no, I think you raised a really good point in that it should be the, a woman's choice about her role in the workforce or with her family after she has a child. Um, I think studies have shown too that it is seen men, if they have children, are seen as now they have greater responsibility to earn a living and provide for that family, whereas women are still stereotypically seen as it's time now for them to ramp down, um, if not exit the workforce temporarily for, you know, period. So I, I do really think that is still in 2020 a very common misconception people can have about the makeup of families. It's amazing we're still having these discussions. I mean, my, my daughter is now 25 years old and when she was a toddler, I was earning my master's degree and moving um, upward in hospital administration and it never occurred to me that that wasn't possible. And uh, yet I've seen it played out over and over and over where people just feel like they have too many responsibilities to juggle with too little flexibility in how they can fulfill all those roles. I think through this pandemic, we've seen that flexibility can mean that people contribute in, in larger and more numerous ways than perhaps were, was once seen possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a great point. So, you know, as we wrap up here, Joyce, it's been, you know, first, such a pleasure catching up with you, just really interesting. But I also, given your expertise, you, you chief culture officer, you probably have some ways and you can identify some tells about an organization's cultures that aren't textbook. So I'm curious about the subtle messages we learn about a place. And I, I received this as a candy striper in the gift shop, working the front desk. It sounds like you did as well as you were climbing the ranks to your position you hold today about previous workplaces that you were in. But when it comes to the messages we receive about a culture, what does this place believe? What does this place support? What does it, um, not tolerate, what are some tells that perhaps aren't approved by HR, they didn't get by the Department of Marketing, that go beyond the mission statement that a workplace culture is truly equitable for women? Can you share with our listeners anything they should be keeping an eye out for in future workplaces or their very own? Uh, sure. I mean, I can tell you the things that, that I look for. Um, I, I tend to look at um, tables where decisions are made, the tables in the rooms. Um, I have had long had a habit of counting in a room 
what is the percentage of, of women to the total people in the room? What's the percentage of people of color? And uh, it's, it's just a habit that, that I have. And it's interesting how I've seen that change over time. That's the positive side. Um, and it's also interesting um, some of the tables where it hasn't changed. Hmm. And so I think it can be very telling to look at um, who's at the table. Who actually has a voice? Who do you hear doing the speaking in an organization? Um, where does uh, culture and vision and direction come from? Um, are the, the women the implementers and the men are making the decisions? Or are women developing vision and direction and making decisions and communicating that? Um, how are promotions made? And perhaps even as importantly, how is the pipeline filled? Uh, I think we've all seen workplaces where, um, you know, promotions happen and it tends to be that the person being promoted looks just like the person who was promoted before them. Um, and you wonder, how did this happen? And then you look at the pipeline and you're like, well, I know exactly how this happened. We haven't intentionally put people in line for these positions in the past. That has to change. Um, are women mostly in traditional helper roles? Or like I said, are they making decisions? Um, are they in positions to influence other people? Are they hiring people? Um, are they doing performance appraisals? Are they learning? Are they being developed? Um, I think those are the questions that you have to ask, not just count uh, how many employees there are and how many women make up the female part of those employees. It's what are they doing and who, who's doing the speaking? I, I love that. So versus pulling up the uh, executive team website or getting a sense of who's on the board, I think it's so interesting. It's something we don't always have any sort of glimpses into because it's all behind closed doors, but what are those dynamics like? You might have women and people of color at the table, but are you listening to them? Are, is there, are there perspectives being actively solicited and raised and shared and uh, you know, taken into consideration? Um, I think, do you have any advice? Because unless you are in that room, sometimes those dynamics are unknown to you and remain unknown. Have you learned anything through your career as to how to kind of assess those dynamics, even if you're a few steps away? Oh, I think you can even do some online research. Look at what, what have the press releases been from the organization? Who's doing the talking? Hmm. Who are they announcing is in new positions? Um, who, who were the decision makers? around that who's who's saying i hired this new person and i'm so excited about it um i so i think you can look at what has the press been um I, you can even look at some of the um online sites um uh, from people who have applied to and who have worked at those um positions places like glassdoor and and look and see what are they saying about the organization um that isn't always accurate, but it is the, it is the perception and the perception um, is part of the reality. So I think it's just some, some homework can, can really yield some results. I mean, you can even ask in the HR department, tell me about the last five people you promoted. Hmm. Yeah. Um, what are their roles? What are they doing? Why did you promote them? How did they contribute? And what advice should that give a new employee here to help them understand what's valued at this organization? Great, great question to ask. 
Well, Joyce, I've so enjoyed our conversation. Like I said, I want to thank you for joining me today. I know you are still settling into your role. Um, it sounds like you are up to some really, really important work with your health system. So I want to first wish you continued success uh, in the years ahead and the months ahead, especially in this challenging time. But also thank you for sharing these really relevant thoughts with our listeners today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Molly. It's been great to talk with you. Likewise.